0: This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here at Christian Chapel. And whether you're joining us in person or online, uh, we're thrilled that you're here today. Today we are wrapping up our fall message series called Exodus, the God who saves. We've kind of walked through some of the high points of the story of God calling the people of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land talking about how their story is not just something that happened but the exodus story is something we see replayed over and over and over again throughout the scriptures it's something that continues to happen in our lives today we are still on a path of god calling us from where we were to where he wants us to be and just like the israelites we are not going to get it all perfect every step of the way so last week we left uh, the story with the Israelites on the edge of the Promised Land. They've sent twelve spies in to explore the land. Ten come back and say we can't do it. There's giants in the land. Two come back and say yes we can. Let's go for it. Today we're going to pick up the story with Israel's response to the report of those twelve men, and we're going to talk about sin consequences and grace. Okay, so so we'll kind of walk through that. And again, the story of the Israelites is our story as well. So we're going to talk about what happens when we sin. What happens when we experience the consequences of our sin and how does God's grace continue to come to us again and again and again, no matter what our circumstances might be. So this morning, this will apply to all of us except for the perfect ones among us. So if you're perfect, if sin has never been an issue for you, you don't think it will ever be an issue for you, will you please uh, come and just stand next to me and we will bow down and worship you. And we will ask you for advice, but I know none of us are going to do that because we all know. I sin, I have sinned, I probably will sin, and in those moments of sin, those moments of turning away from what God has revealed, what God has directed, we want to make sure that we are responding appropriately so that we don't take a bad situation and make it even worse worse. So if you have a Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 14 with me. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll read verse 1 through 4, then we'll jump down to verses 10 and 11. So again, where we are in the story is that the Israelites have sent 12 spies into the land. They come back. They say, look, the land is awesome. But 10 of them say, but there are giants who live there. The land devours the people living in it. We cannot conquer it. Let's go back to Egypt And the other two say, no, 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 God is with us. Let's move forward. So in verse one, we get the response of the Israelites to the negative report. It says, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then you drop down to verse 10. and says, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared. And at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? So what we see in these verses is the 10 negative spies were successful. They were able to convince the people, not only can we not go into the land, but we think we actually need to choose new leaders and we need to get out of here. And then Israel actually pushes a step farther than that. And when Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua fall on their face before the Lord, try to intervene with the people, the people's response is, hey, we might just go ahead and kill you guys. Not only are we going to reject what God has said through you, but we're going to actually talk about stoning you. So what we need to understand, first of all, is for Israel, this is not some fall, small form of disobedience, but this is whole scale rebellion. Right? This is not them saying, hey, we're not sure about this. We really need to, let's wait. Let's pray. Let's see if this is really what the Lord directs. This is Israel taking their stand saying, we know exactly what God has called us to do, and we are absolutely refusing to do so. Right? Now, now, when you and I talk about sin, a lot of times we use really passive language. Okay? We talk about, uh, I, I fell into sin. I stumbled on the path. I made a poor choice. I was deceived. Uh, the enemy tricked me. It was, you know, maybe we pulled the, the atom in the garden of, Lord, that woman you gave me. Right? We, we find someone else to blame. And, and the reason we do that is we think if I'm not fully responsible for it, if I can blame it on someone else, then I don't have to fully accept the consequences that would come with my behavior. So we love kind of this passive language about sin, but as we read the story of the Israelites, it's teaching us a couple very important things that we need to understand. They're gonna be kind of painful, but we really need to embrace them. So, so the first thing they're teaching us is that sin is the rejection of God's plan. Okay, sin is not just, oh, I, I really didn't know. It's sin in those moments where you know exactly what God has called you to do. You know what he's called you to say. You know where he's called you to go. And you willfully and gladly choose to do the opposite. So for Israel, they knew what God had called them to do. But they didn't know how he was going to do it. And because they didn't know how, they rejected the what. And you, you and I, we found ourselves in that position before. I know where the Lord has called me. I know what he's calling me to do. I know he's told me I should forgive. I know he's told me I should give. I know he's told me I should take this step of faith, but I don't know how he's going to lead. I don't know how he's going to provide. I don't know how he's going to get me from where I am to where I want to be. And so because I don't know how, I'm not going to do what he's called me to do. Sin is this choice of I see his plan, I know his plan. I'm just simply not going to do it. There's nothing accidental about the Israelites' choice. Right? This is an intentional decision. We know what God wants. And in fact, not only do they know what they, that he wants, but they become so opposed to it, they reject his leaders, threaten to find new ones, and kill the old ones. They're very certain and very secure. This is what God has called us to do, and we're just not going to do it, which is a reminder to us also that sin is an attempt to dethrone God. Sometimes we're tempted to think, well, when I sin, it's not so much that I'm rejecting God as much as I'm trying to help him. I think he might not fully understand my situation. I think he doesn't really know. Like I know what he's calling me to in my marriage, but he doesn't get all the dynamics. He doesn't know the home I grew up in. He doesn't know the situations we're facing. I know he's calling me to take this stand at school, but he, he doesn't really understand the price that I might pay. So I, I know God is calling me to go 100%, but I'm going to maybe just try to go 75 I'm going to try to go 50, or I'm going to try to talk him back, right? We, we have this idea that it's not really sin. It's more of a negotiation process. But with God, he's an all-or-nothing kind of God. When he calls Israel out of Egypt, he's calling them out of slavery, out from living under the oppression of Pharaoh, and into the freedom of living for him completely. He does not set Israel free to do whatever they want for the rest of their life. He sets them free to become his people, his sons and his daughters, but what we see again and again and again in the Exodus story is that Israelites want to treat God like an advisor, not a king. And we face that same temptation in our life of, Lord, I appreciate your advice as long as it's what I want to do. Right, but, but in those moments when you know what God has called and you choose to do the opposite, it's not that you're trying to sit on the throne with him, it's that you are pushing him off entirely. So if you were with us when we started the Exodus story, we, we talked, especially in those first two weeks, about Exodus is the story of a battle, the battle of the gods. It's a battle between God and the battle between Pharaoh and all the false gods of Egypt. And those battles are always a mismatch, because battles with the Lord always are. He always wins. But what do we see Israel doing on the edge of the promised land? They know what God has called them to do. They decide they don't want to do it, and they're going to choose their own path they've adopted the heart and the mindset of Pharaoh. When Moses first goes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord says, let my people go. Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? that I I don't know who that is. I'm going to do what I want. And now on the edge of the promised land, the people of Israel who've seen God provide over and over and over and over again, they reach a point where they say, we know what God wants, but we don't want to do it. So not only are we going to adopt the heart and the mindset of Pharaoh, but we're actually going to run back to him. It's their attempt to not just get on the throne with God, but to push him off entirely. And that's what sin continues to be for you and I. It's a a choice of, hey, I know what God wants, but I think I know better. I know what God wants, but I want what I want more. So Lord, get off, let me get on, and here we go. Then the last thing we we learn from the Israelites on the edge of the promised land is that sin is a willful and deliberate choice. This wasn't... So we're going to see in a moment, there are some consequences for their behavior. But it's not like they just kind of slipped and made one bad mistake. If you read through that whole story in Numbers chapter 14, you're going to see there are several times where they are given the option and the opportunity to repent, to turn away, to trust God and follow the path that he has for them. Caleb and Joshua intervene for them. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before the people. There are opportunities for them to understand your reaction is not pleasing to the Lord, and this is not the path that he's called us to. But the people of Israel make a willful and deliberate choice. It says they were weeping and wailing at the path that God was calling them on. For you and I, we, we have to come to that point where we understand when I sin, I didn't stumble into it, I didn't fall into it, I wasn't tricked into it, but at some point I made a deliberate decision to reject the plan of God, I made a deliberate decision to push him off the throne and try to climb on it with him, and I made a willful and, if we're honest, oftentimes joyful choice to walk into sin. Knowing full well this is not the path, this is not the plan, this is not the place God has called me to, but I'm going to do it anyways. And we can have all the excuses in the world of, well, you don't know my circumstances, you don't know the pressure I was facing, you don't know the hardship I had faced, but what we're learning from the people of Israel is when God calls us, our only job is to obey to follow the path, to follow the plan, to go where he leads. And and so what we see with the Israelites is the same thing we're going to experience in our life, is when we sin, there are going to be consequences for that sin. So the people rebel. they, They talk about stoning Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua. And then it says the glory of the Lord falls, and God gets the people's attention. And in verse 28, we read the punishment for their sin. The Lord is speaking to Moses and telling him, so tell them. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who is counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. There are, are real consequences to the Israelites' behavior. God wasn't doing it to get back at them. He wasn't being vindictive towards them. Right? There's no delight. And, and I don't know what your, your church experience is like. You might have heard messages like this before where it seemed as if maybe the, the pastor was almost gleeful in his presentation of it. Like, God can't wait to get you punks back for all the stuff you've been doing. Right? He's got 40 years of misery waiting. for. This is not what's happening here. What's happening here is God is allowing people, the people of Israel to experience the consequences of their choices, to serve as a permanent reminder to them and to all the generations that will follow of when you choose to reject God's plan, when you choose to, when you choose to try to kick God off the throne, when you willfully and deliberately choose a life of sin, there will be consequences for those behaviors. Now, we don't like that. Because we want to live a consequence-free life. I I do as well. Well, we should rephrase that. Personally, we would like to live a consequence-free life while everyone else continues to experience the consequences of their behaviors, right? Because I'm happy to get off the hook all the time, but I can't have you getting off the hook all the time because that's going to mess my life up eventually you're going to take advantage of me you're going to take advantage of people I love you're going to cause some harm some destruction but for me personally in big ways and small ways I would be thrilled to not have consequences for my choices like I, I would love to get the same effect from Oreos and salt and vinegar potato chips that you get from broccoli and kale right like who doesn't want to live in that life I want to eat what I want without any consequence when this, this next summer is coming up, you know what I want to do? I want to go buy a big, beautiful ski boat that I have no business buying, that I can't possibly afford, that I can barely pay for the gas to fill the thing up. And I want to buy it, and I want to take my family, and I want to take my friends out, and I want to enjoy it, and I don't ever want to experience any of the financial hardship that might come from my foolish choices. Anyone else? Anyone else want to be able to spend whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and never pay the price for it? Yeah, right? Like, hey, I, you know what I want? I want just a permanent bailout. Like, no matter what I choose to spend on somebody, somehow is always going to bail me out. That's what I, that's what I want. I, I want, and yeah, I mean, the, there's a sinful, selfish part of all of us. I, I want to spend my week watching uh, funny YouTube videos and texting dumb GIFs to my my friends and then show up on Sunday and somehow magically there's a message that has been studied and prepared for and is ready to go. And when I sin, I want to pray a short prayer of forgiveness and I want an immediate reset button for any of the consequences that might have resulted from my sin. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to walk down. I just want to be able to say, Jesus has forgiven me. Y'all should too. What's your problem? Why do you keep holding this against me? Right now, I can tell from your silence that none of you have ever felt any of these ways before. Right, you are, I mean, apparently it's a room full of Caleb's and Joshua's. Like, no, yeah, I mean, maybe in the next service, those other people will be here, but we're ready to take the promised land. But some of us aren't. Some of us sin, some of us fall short, and when we fall short, we experience the consequences of our behavior. And so again, if the story of the Israelites isn't just a story that happened, but it's a story that continues to happen, then what do we learn about the consequences of our choices? The first thing we learn is we can't control the consequences of our sin. Once it happens, once we've done it, those things kind of go out and we lose the ability to grab on and control where they're going. So for the Israelites, when they willfully, deliberately, repeatedly reject God's plan, it now sets them on a new path. It's not the path that God wanted for them. It's a path that goes back out into the desert. It's a path that's going to be 40 years long before it circles back to the promised land. This was not God's intention. When the spies go into the promised land, he tells them, go explore the land that I am giving to you. And his intention is they will come back, they will give their report, and then the people will go conquer the land. But when the Israelites choose to reject the Lord, they also then start this new path of consequence that they can't control. It's a reminder to us, when we sin, we sow destruction. And when we sin, we will reap destruction, not just for us, but for everyone around us as well. None of us are an island. The sin of the Israelites affects their children for 40 years. If if you remember in that passage, it said, your children will be shepherds in the desert. They're going to have this wandering, hard, difficult life. Why? Because of the sins of their parents. The sins of the parents affect the children. And you and I, we've had that experience in our life. Sometimes it's our sin and we see it kind of rippling out to those around us. And other times it's the sins of others that ripple towards us. But one of the lies that the enemy is going to tell you is you can sin and you can control the consequences of, yes, it might be wrong. This might not be the path, but you can manage it. You can keep it secret. You can keep it contained. But sin is always going to cost you more than you want to pay. It's always going to take you into a darker space than you want to go into. And it's always going to hurt more people than you could have ever imagined. God doesn't want us on that path, not just for us, but also for others. As we keep reading the story, we also see that God's consequences for our sin don't mean that God doesn't love us. Because we take that thought as well. Some of you, maybe you've got little kids. And you've punished them at different times for what they've done, right? Because you don't want them to grow up and be a terrorist. And so you just want them to have like basic self-control and things like that. And have any of your kids ever looked at you after you've grounded them or taken something away and given you some variation of, you don't love me. Why don't you like me? Right? One of ours, I remember at one point turning to Angie and saying, you don't care about my life. Like, well, we do actually. That's why we're here because we care. But when we're experiencing the consequences of our sin, it's easy for us to say, God doesn't care about us anymore. He's abandoned us. And again, this is where the enemy's going to come in. He's going to tell you, hey, God doesn't care. So you might as well keep doing whatever you want. Hey, God doesn't love you. You're not going to be forgiven. You're not going to be restored. So you might as well just finish this race. Just sprint down that line. Devote yourself wholly to yourself for the rest of your life. But again, with the story of the Israelites, what we're hearing and what we're remembering is consequences are not proof that God doesn't love us, but they're a way that he acts to get our attention, to help us understand the serious nature of sin. We learn through those consequences, which means our consequences can actually be a sign and a symbol of God's grace. And then the the last thing we learn from the Israelites when it comes to consequences is they should always be expected even when they're not experienced. There may be times where God graciously and miraculously saves you or saves me from the consequences of our choices. He he does it for the Israelites. As you you go back to Exodus 14 and read the the chapters that follow that, you'll see uh, they grumble, complain, and threaten to go back when they're on the banks of the Red Sea. They grumble, complain, threaten to go back when they are running out of food in the desert. They grumble, complain, threaten to go back when they're running out of water. Again and again and again, their response to every form of uncertainty is to turn their back on the Lord and go back to slavery. But in each of those instances, when they grumble on the banks of the Red Sea, God's response is not consequences, it's deliverance. He splits the sea and they walk right through it. When they grumble for food, his response is not judgment, it's mercy. And he gives them quail and manna. When they grumble for water and complain and threaten to go back, his response is not judgment, it's water from a rock. In all of these instances, Israel has sinned and yet God has chosen to extend mercy, grace, and to withhold the consequences of their choices which seems as if it might have started to plant the seeds in their mind and in their hearts of we can treat the Lord however we want and we always get what we want in the end. And so you and I, we can point to some of these in our own life. If there are times, there are spaces, there are places, there are relationships where we know there should have been serious consequences for our actions, but for some reason we were spared of them. Right, Maybe you completely lost your mind, you lost your temper, and it should have led to these destructive consequences, and yet the Lord saved you and preserved you. you. You knew that night, you had had way too much to drink, but you got behind the wheel anyways, and somehow God saved you, preserved you, you didn't harm anyone. Or where you had maybe years or decades of treating your spouse in horrible, terrible ways that are not pleasing to the Lord, and yet God was working in mercy and grace on their hearts so they would not leave you, abandon you, and break apart the family. Now in all of these spaces, we cannot mistake the lack of consequences for God's approval of our lifestyle. He works in grace. He works in mercy. And there are times where we do not experience the expected and natural consequences of our choices. But if we keep going down those paths over and over and over again, God loves us enough that eventually he'll let us experience the weight of our sin. Not to crush us, but to draw us back to him. And so if, when you find yourself in that spot, if I've sinned, and here come the consequences, and I'm enduring them, and I don't like them. What now am I going to do? For most of us in that space, our first option is we want to control the consequences instead of addressing the sin. We try to fix everything out here instead of dealing with what's in here. The Israelites model this for us as well. So if you, if you look to Numbers chapter 14, verse 39, Moses gives the Israelites the, the report of God's judgment. And they come back and they, it says, "'When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, "'they mourned bitterly. "'Early the next morning, "'they set out for the highest point in the hill country, "'saying, now we are ready to go up "'to the land the Lord promised. "'Surely we have sinned. "'But Moses said, "'Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? "'This will not succeed. "'Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. "'You will be defeated by your enemies.' For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country. Though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Horma. So the Israelites hear God's judgment and they respond with, sorry God, we like your original plan, we'll do it now. Right? In, in the same way with a small child, they get in trouble for something and suddenly they are the kindest, sweetest, most helpful child you've ever seen. Why are they doing that? Not because their heart changed. Because they're trying to get out of the consequences. Right? If, if I smile, if I give mom a kiss, if I give dad a hug, maybe then they'll forget that they were going to put me in time out. Maybe they'll forget that they were going to, you know, as a teenager, they were going to take away my phone or ground me. I'll just be the sweetest version of myself I can possibly be. And it's, it's tempting to read the Israelites' responses. Oh, look, they learned their lesson. But it's actually a revelation of how far they still have to go. Dr. Roy Gaines says the Israelites are hardly turning from rebellion to cooperation with God. Before, they were unwilling to go where he led. Now they want to go where he is no longer leading. Israel still wants to be in charge. They've heard the word of the Lord. You're going to the desert for 40 years. I will deliver your children into the promised land. Caleb and Joshua will accompany them, but the rest of you need to go. My path of grace is no longer into the promised land. It's back into the desert. And their response is, let's see if we can change his mind. Let's go ahead and go on up Anyways, now, if sin is about control, then it makes sense that we would try to control the consequences of our sin. How many of you have ever ridden in a boat, on a lake, on a river, ocean? Okay, so, so when you're in the boat, the, more, the bigger the boat, the bigger the wake it creates behind it, right? And so as you go through the water, the boat is pushing forward, it's displacing the water in front of it, and then creating a wake behind it. Now, when you're in the boat, you can't control where the wake goes or what the wake does. Once you've gone through, then it's, you're no longer in control of that situation. Now, when it comes to our sin, what many of us try to do is if sin is that boat plowing through the water and leaving this wake of destruction behind us, when our sin is revealed, our first instinct is, let me circle back and control that wake. Let me go stop it from causing harm. Let me go stop it from causing destruction. This is what the Israelites are doing. Lord, we've heard your judgment. So here's what we're going to do we're going to strap on our swords and we're going to go take the promised land, just like you told us we should. But the Lord's response in this moment is hey, that's not the way of my grace. The way of my grace is not to ignore your sin and try to go ahead and do it anyways. But the way of my grace is going to be humble repentance acceptance of the consequences and believing this new path I'm on, even if it's not the path that God wanted me to be on, is where I'm going to experience his power, where I'm going to experience his presence, where he's going to be with me. And I I think I told you last week, uh, last week was my favorite message of the Exodus story. I, I love preaching the message of, you're on the edge of the promised land and even if there are big problems, God is going to provide. Like the big faith-filled, let's go, let's do this. As a pastor, those are the fun messages to preach. And yet the Exodus story also contains some very difficult passages that we have to deal with. And, And one of those is this fact from the Israelites of there are some consequences of sin that will not be undone. It doesn't mean you're not forgiven. It doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It does not mean he doesn't love you. But it means there are certain paths that once we start down them, We have closed the door to the old path that we were on. So for the Israelites, this is what happens. God has told them, you will not enter the promised land. For 40 years, you're gonna go to the desert and you're gonna learn that sin is a big deal. And you're gonna learn that I'm kind and gracious, that I'm abounding in love and compassion. You're gonna learn that I still provide and I still love and I still care. But you're also going to learn if you reject my plan, then you're gonna be on a new path. And that path is not where I directed, that path is not where I wanted. Now, for us today as followers of Jesus, we love to talk about his grace, we love to talk about his mercy, but I think sometimes we we kind of misunderstand and misapply the idea that grace means God is gonna remove not only my sin, but all of the destruction that the wake of my sin has caused in the world. But there are things that you and I can choose to do It can cause consequences that cannot be undone. For the Israelites, it meant, hey, 40 years in the desert. You're not getting in no matter how hard you try. For us, maybe you were unfaithful in your marriage, and there's a divorce, and the spouse is remarried, and now no matter how much you long to get the family back together, it's not happening. Or maybe maybe it was a situation at work where you were maybe not loyal, or maybe you lacked integrity, and you acted in ways where you were fired from that job, or maybe you completely lost the ability to work in that field entirely, and it's never coming back. It's a permanent, closed door. Maybe you were the student who was on scholarship, but you, you weren't serious about the grades, or you behaved in other ways that were at odds with what you had agreed to, and now the scholarship's been taken away, it's been given to someone else, and it's been made very clear to you, you will never get that back. I don't don't know what it is, there's no delight in those moments, but I think we can all acknowledge either from our own lives or from the lives of people we know and love, there are certain consequences for sin that cannot be undone. Now, hear me very, very carefully. That does not mean God cannot forgive you. It does not mean God cannot restore you. It does not mean God cannot lead you from where you are back to where he wants you to be. But sometimes it does mean the path you are on is no longer the path that's available to you. And so in that space, what do you do? In that space, we react like the Israelites. They say, let's strap on our swords and let's go fight. We say, I'm just going to fix it all. I'm going to spend all my time controlling the wake of my sin. I'm going to go back and try to be the husband I should have been. I'm going to go back and you know try to undo 10 years of neglect with my children in about 10 days. I'm going to force myself into their lives, into every moment, into every situation. I'm going to circle back and try to tell my tell my professors, hey, I've got all the late work I didn't do. Here's a semester's worth for you. Can I keep my scholarship? We're going to circle back to our boss of, hey, I can make restitution. I can make it up. I'll be the best employee you've ever had. We give all our time, all our energy, all our attention to controlling the wake of our sin instead of giving our time, energy, and attention to just turning off the boat. Like we can't control that all we can control is the action that caused all of the destruction. The response the Lord is looking for from the Israelites is one of humble repentance. Lord, we've sinned against you. We've sinned against the man the men that you sent to speak to us. And so now if you're leading us on the desert, we want to walk in repentance. We want to walk in humility. And we're going to trust, Lord, that that even if that whole generation will never see the promised land, Lord, in the desert, we're going to teach our children about you so that when they get back here, they don't make the same mistakes that we did. See, when you're in that moment of experiencing the consequences of your sin, the choice you make is to experience God's grace where you are instead of spending all your energy trying to get back to where you used to be. saying, Lord, like this clearly wasn't God's plan. This wasn't his purpose. It's not where he wanted me to be. God's plan was not to call the Israelites out, have them deny him, and send them back into the desert for 40 years. But when they refused, this was the path they placed themselves on. And this was now the place where they were going to experience the grace, the mercy, and the provision of God. But they couldn't experience his grace, his mercy, and his restoration until they they stopped trying to go back to where they used to be. And for for some of us, that's the spot we're stuck in this morning. Our sin has taken us down a path. Now that we're on it, we don't want to be there. And we're giving all of our time, all of our attention, all of our energy to getting back what we had before through our own strength, through our own power, through our own hard work and determination. And the message of the Lord to us this morning is stop trying to go there and experience my grace right here. Repent. Confess and listen for where I'm leading you from here on. And then, so, so I told you, it's a story of sin, consequences, and grace. And the grace we see is God's grace revealed in chapter 14, verse 30 and 31, when he says, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in, to enjoy the land you have rejected. So there is sin, there's consequences, and then there's this extravagant gift of God's grace. Where he does tell the parents, hey, you have made a choice and your choice means you're never going to live in the land. But your choice does not mean I'm going to withdraw my presence from you. It does not mean I'm going to stop providing for you. It does not mean I'm going to abandon you back to Egypt. It does not mean I'm going to leave your children in the desert forever. It means for a set time, you're going to follow this path. You're going to learn about my grace. You're going to learn about my mercy. You're going to learn about my provision. I'm going to bring you back into the promised land. Your ancestors, your children, your children's children, they will dwell in the land. You will not, but they will. And when they come back, Caleb and Joshua, these men who were faithful, who were ready to go, will be there as the elders to lead them into this new experience, to help ensure they don't commit the same sins of their fathers and grandfathers. What we learn from the Israelites is wherever you are, God's grace is available and abundant. It's it's not about, because we we believe that lie of, well, if I'm going to be forgiven, then I've got to be forgiven back where I was before. I've got to have it all given back to me. But what we're learning from the Israelites is God's grace is wherever you are. His grace is not dependent on a place. It's not poured out on on buildings, on relationships and situations as much as it is poured out on people. God's grace comes to you as an individual. And then as you experience it as an individual, it flows into all of these other areas of your life. So for you to experience God's grace does not require that the relationship is restored. It does not require that you get the job back. It doesn't mean the scholarship has to be given. It doesn't mean the dream has to become a reality. It just means in this moment, I'm going to confess, I'm going to repent, and God is going to pour his grace out on me going to be available it's going to be abundant and it's going to have nothing to do with me and everything to do with the Lord and if if we had time to spend another couple weeks in Exodus what we would see is as Israel turns back towards the wilderness the wilderness becomes a place of grace it's a place where God dwells among them It's a place where he leads them by day and by night. It's a place where he protects them from their enemies. It's a place where he continues to provide manna for them to eat. It's a place where he continues to build them into a thriving nation in an inhospitable land. It's a place where he continues to bless them with the joys of marriages, with the birth of children, where he blesses their flocks and their herds. It's a place where they continue to learn and to grow their knowledge of who God is and who he has called them to be. In the desert for 40 years, they're being reminded, God is God and there is no one like him. And so they are learning when he speaks, our only job is to obey. And when he calls, our only job is to follow. And when he promises, our only job is to trust and to wait. The desert winds up being this beautiful place of grace where the Israelites as a nation move from people who know about God to people who know him and walk with him. To the point that when they come back to the promised land 40 years later, there is now no hesitation. They are ready to follow Caleb. They're ready to follow Joshua into the land that God has given to them. Wherever you are, God's grace is available and it's abundant. It's more than enough for you. Israel makes it to the promised land, which is more a statement about God than it is about them. It's what Paul reminds us of in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's a reminder to us today that the promised land is is not a place. It's not something you have to get back. It's not, you can, you can give up these lies of the promised land for me is gonna be the restoration of this or the reclamation of that. The promised land is the grace of God being poured out on you right where you are. Your actions have not exhausted his grace. No matter how many times you've offended, no matter how many times you've tried to dethrone him, no matter how many times you've rejected his purposes and his plans, his response to you again and again and again and again and again is to pour out his grace on you in this moment. He saves, he forgives, he delivers, and he leads us from where we are, even if it's not where he wanted us to be. From where we are, back to where he wants us to. be. Back on a path of new life. Back on a path defined by his presence. Back into an experience of his grace day after day after day. So if you'll stand with me, I want to lead us in a couple prayers. Then the the band's going to come. They're going to lead us in a final song. Will you bow your heads and and close your eyes with me? So I'm going to do something a, a bit different this morning. Instead of dismissing you to the prayer room, I want to invite you to pray these prayers with me. So we're going to pray prayers of repentance. We're going to pray a prayer of acceptance. And then we're going to pray prayers that will receive grace. So I'm going to model this for you. I'm going to pray my own personal prayers of repentance and acceptance and grace. And I'm going to invite you as I pray, will you pray with me? Just begin to verbalize the things that the Lord is saying, the things that he's putting in your heart. So you might, you might even want to make a, a physical move. of Maybe you want to move to an altar. Maybe you want to just stick your hands out in front of you. But Lord, we come to you this morning. And first, Lord, we begin with repentance. We receive the conviction of your spirit. We lay down the lies that we believe, that our sin is not a big deal, that our sin is not our fault. And so, Lord, this morning, as your spirit speaks, we confess. Will you forgive us of our sin? Will you cleanse us of our unrighteousness? Lord, we begin to pray those personal prayers of repentance. God, will you forgive me today of my self-righteousness? Will you forgive me of my anger and my quick temper? Lord, will you forgive me for my pride? Will you forgive me for seeking my kingdom over yours? Will you forgive me for viewing those you've placed in my life as commodities to be used instead of people to be treasured? Lord, will you forgive me for my tendency to judge and condemn those who disagree with me in any way? Will you forgive me, Lord, of my unending desire to be right? Lord, will you forgive me Forgive me of selfishness, forgive me of sin, Lord, in all of its aspects. Forgive me for the spaces where I know exactly what you are calling me to do, and I'm refusing to do it. Forgive me of the places where I have been given into the lie that I can rule with you. Forgive me for thinking that a lack of consequences is the same thing as your approval of my behavior. Lord, will you forgive me, and as you forgive me, Lord, as you forgive us, will you lead us into prayers of acceptance. Lord, I see the path and I see the place where my sin has taken me. It's not where I wanted to be. The consequences that I experience are not what I would have chosen. And yet, Lord, I I realize that in this moment all of that is out of my control. So Lord in in this space as I confess my sin I also accept those natural consequences that come with it. Lord will you please help me to stop trying to control it to stop trying to get back. Will you help me embrace this place and this space as a place and space where your grace is poured out. Lord, help me to stop trying to control the wake and to just shut off the boat that's causing all the destruction. And Lord, as we move into that place, we also now move into prayers of grace. There may be natural consequences that we cannot undo, but Lord, we come today to receive your grace, knowing that the eternal consequences of our sin have been dealt with through Jesus Christ, that we have been forgiven We have been set free, and we take our stand wherever we are as your sons and your daughters. So, Lord, we pray that your grace would come and overwhelm the lies of the enemy in our hearts and our minds this morning. Will your grace come and speak truth to us, that where we are is not where we will always be. Will you come, Lord, and show us that you have completely set us free? You have destroyed the bonds of sin that have held us so tightly. Lord, you have separated what we have done from who we are. You have remade us. You have reclaimed us. You have called us your sons and your daughters. You are remaking our hearts. Lord, you are cleansing our minds. You're changing our vision. You're, you're changing our memories. You're changing our view of the future. Lord, as we step into this place of grace this morning, we receive all of your mercy. We receive all of your forgiveness. We believe that you are the Lord, that you're abounding in love, that you are full of compassion, and that you pour out undeserved riches on us over and over and over again. We thank you, Lord, that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. We thank you, Lord, that you pursue us even when we flee from you. We thank you that in our darkest hour, you always move towards us. And so, God, we come in the midst of sin to confess, to accept, and to receive your grace today. Lord, will you pour it out on us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.